welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Angelina Sanford and Heidi White. Angelina is back. How is it going, Angelina? Welcome back. You had a no, you had thanks. a you had a vacation from the show, a respite. I don't know. What's I did. Word. It was very strange, <laughs> but I got a bunch of work done on the book, so nice. I made the most and use you, of. The you time. were traveling a little bit. I did do things. some traveling. Yep. So um, you're back. You're here to talk about. Kate Chopin's uh, Desiree's oh, Baby. Oh, you're hurting me already, David. You're not going to hit that in hard. Not today, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> How do you say it? We're, we're going to talk about it? that. It's okay. it. Actually, okay. I looked it up. Oh. Oh, but, I'm, I'm looking we'll right here in the Norton Anthology. Okay, plus I'm French. It's <laughs> I know, I was going to say, I'm going to believe Angelina on everything on pronunciation in this story. This is yeah. her This is her town. This is where she's from. Yeah, I know. So I want to talk about that in a minute. Okay, so Heidi, what's going on with you first, though? Oh, oh, you know, just reading stories. <laughs> <laughs> this one's not very long, right? Yeah, no, this one was short. Um, we are here to discuss... Um, Desiree's baby, and we will discuss the pronunciation of the completely irrelevant con- pronunciation of the author's name. Um, in a minute, <laughs> I don't see how that's uh, irrelevant we'll, in the we'll least. Fight, but okay. We'll <laughs> about that. Um, we we mentioned last week. You know, we all really, you know we read sponsor ads and sponsor reads and all that kind of stuff. Um, but we mentioned on last week's show that in July we are dedicating or however you want to put it, the show to all of our Patreon people who are supporting us. So instead of reading an ad from somebody else, we wanted to say thank you to everyone who has been contributing to make the show possible. Um, if you are a Patreon supporter, you already know that about the cool swag that we have, the mugs and the t-shirts and the access to Tam and Angelina's talks and so such things and so forth and all that. Um, but if you are not already a member, then those are things you should learn about. So if you head over to uh, patreon.com slash close reads, you can see the list of all the things uh, that you can get by being a supporter. Um, I think you get access to the talks for as little as $2 a month. Um, and then as you go up each level up to $20 a month, there's different different uh, things of varying value and worth and cost to manufacture that we will be happy to send you if you are uh, a Patreon supporter. Um, so thank you for, for those of you who have been supporting the show. And if you want, if you're interested in that moving forward, we would certainly be grateful for your support. But of course, the most important thing is the listening and the conversation. And um, as always, we are grateful to see all that conversation continuing to go on over on the Facebook page. Jonathan and Tim and I had some ongoing conversations about an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge with some people. Um, so there's been some really fun conversations and as always you know that's like the thing we expect if there wasn't conversation i'd be like all right what's going on who 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 like who's over there in you know like insulting people or something what's what's, what's the problem going on that's happening so uh so we're all you know the whole community is really great um thank you to everyone who's been a part of it and uh, to all the new people um join us head over to the facebook page but we know that for some people uh you are not on facebook that's not a part of your internet life so we do have our new close reads newsletter um and the link to subscribe to that is in the description of every episode um and you can also go over to um the close reads page on the website and find it there as well so when i was in montana i met a close reads fan who is not on facebook it was a little bit like finding a unicorn (laughs) i was like wait you're real they really are well when (laughs) i sent on facebook when i sent the first email out i actually got like maybe five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten no i got a bunch of emails back from people saying hey i'm not on facebook thanks for doing this and so there's at least 
at least that many people in the world who both <laughs> who who are in the intersection on the Venn diagram of non Facebook users, but also close reads listeners. So there's a, there's at least a few of them out there. <laughs> you see, I've met people who don't fit in either of those Venn circles, neither on Facebook nor close reads listeners. That I understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like no internet at all. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly, exactly. I don't know. I don't know how people can listen with uh, how people can uh, live without without close reads. I just don't. I just don't know how people do that. <laughs> um, but and thus, we should give people their close reads. So this week, we are here to discuss Desiree's baby. Uh, where did you both access this? I'm curious. Did you just find? I it have an anthology of American literature, and it was in there. Okay, with the Norton one. Uh, no, Norton. actually, the Harper. Okay. The compact edition. It's so it's early and late together okay what about you Heidi did you just find it on the I interwebs? found it on the internet I thought for sure it would be in my American literature anthologies but I couldn't find a single one with it but I don't have either of those so did they um did it have a different story of hers yes uh but I don't remember the name of it right now it was that oh I've got a bunch of different anthologies they all have something different so one of them's got the right. awakening and another one's got the storm and another one's got the story of an hour that's what it was. The story of an hour, which I oh, haven't read that's that one. one of my so. Favorites. Also, the okay. storm. The storm and the story of an hour are my favorites. Her and silk, silk stockings is probably her most famous one. Fun fact: It was when I was reading Kate Chopin's *The Awakening* that I decided to be an English major. Oh, I love that! I actually love *The Awakening*. That's the only. That's the only thing I've ever read, and now it's Desiree's baby. But those are the only two. So, so okay. When did you first read The Awakening? I read it in college in my American literature class. Angelina, would you, was that the same for you when you first read it? Or had you read it? No, I read it in um, a junior level uh, women's lit class. Mm. Okay. So one of the reasons, I mean, we, we've had, we have kind of, a, you know, Tim, Tim and uh, Jonathan have been obviously involved in the this, this show too. So we've got the four of you. And one of the reasons that I was, as I was kind of putting the schedule together for these stories, one of the reasons that I chose the two of you is because it makes sense to have two women to come on and discuss uh, Chopin and this story in particular. Um, she, and so I guess, I guess I'm just going to start with this. Did, does her work and did her work when you first discovered it and you first read it, um, did it like, do you think it spoke to you in some way that's specific to your womanness, womanhood. <laughs> um, that then that's what made you enjoy it or like it. Angelina, you mentioned how much it inspired you. Um, was that? Do you think there's something about the way she speaks to and for women that that did that, or was it something more general for you? I'll let go with you first. Uh, well, yes to both of those. <laughs> it was an or question, but I'm going to say yes to both. Um, that's fair. Uh, I was undeclared in college and was not sure what I wanted to do as a major, but I've told the story before on this show about how uh, 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 the director of freshman English had taken me under her wing and mentored me. And so I just kept taking all the classes she taught. And so she taught this junior level class. And um, I was just, I was sitting, I remember it so well. I was in my apartment, I was in my room, I had my pins out and I'm just marking up the awakening like crazy. And I'm just thinking, I am having the best time. I could do this forever. And I was like, wait, I could do this forever. <laughs> this could be a job. I could just read books and mark them up forever. And so that was, that was what did it. But, hmm. um, but her short, Kate, Kate Chopin's fiction, yes, I would definitely say it speaks to me. She, of course, you know, 
it, it ruined her career and life probably writing the awakening. And it wasn't until the 1950s that it was rediscovered and appreciated, but, um, Yes, she is wrestling with what does it mean to be an intellectual woman who maybe is not terribly satisfied in those traditional roles. And again, I need to define things very carefully because when I say traditional roles, I mean traditional Victorian roles. I mean, my thesis is in this, in Victorian women's stuff. And um, hey everyone, well. So I, I mean something very specific by that. You know, the uh, the Victorian view of womanhood was that she was, you know, a bit of an appendage, a show thing. She wasn't given a real education. She wasn't perceived to have a mind, um, uh, and, and she wasn't like a genuine help me to her husband. But, you know, and, and a wealthy woman wouldn't have even raised her kids, right? Like she just <laughs> just didn't do anything, but just look pretty. Um, and so a lot of women had trouble fighting. Um, uh, fulfillment in that, or even to figure out what it meant to be a human, which was certainly not a question people were asking about women at that time. So she's she's dealing with those things. In fact, anybody, we're going to be reading a Susan Gaspel story next week, but her other one, um, The Yellow Wallpaper, uh, deals with this about what would happen when women were unhappy <laughs> being mm. having no life. And, and so they were diagnosed with what they called neurasthenia, are the vapors and the cure for that you gotta you gotta love this the cure for women who were so unhappy because they were not being fully human and weren't able to use their minds was to be given a strict rest cure where she could do nothing not even read not even think total rest was supposed to be the cure for neurasthenia because obviously they had a case of the vapors and the nerves and and so she writes the yellow wallpaper as a, a response to someone who goes insane during the rest cure. So anyway, all of that is to say, yes, I, I love Kate Chopin. I, I love the things that she is wrestling with. Um, and, and maybe some of our readers would be a bit disturbed by some of the endings she gives these stories, but they're cautionary tales about what, what happens when you don't develop the full humanity of a woman. So mm-hmm. Heidi, where, what was your you said you read her in college and then again, you just read Desiree's baby. Uh, what was your, did she move you in the same way? Did she speak to you similarly? Yes, I do read this from the perspective of being a woman and relating to her, uh, feelings of being stifled and brushed aside and of having no voice. Of course I, I, read it from that perspective as a, as a sister, not from my personal experience necessarily, but in, in caring for this character. Um, mm-hmm. I also am with Angelina. I echo what she said that it, it, it is more than that as well. This is a brilliantly constructed and written story. Uh, everything about this story is magnificent. The characterization, not only of Desiree, but of Armand and everyone in this story is fantastic. And so I I also just read it as an appreciator of great literature. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Well, this story is very different. So this is one of her early stories where she was dealing more with the race relations. So if, if if our readers have only been introduced to Kate Chopin via this story, they might be confused about us talking about women's issues because this story is not a woman's issue. Um, but her later stories, she she much more um, gets into that. And then when she published The Awakening, um, it was quite scandalous at well, the time and she was condemned for it. You mentioned that it's not really a woman's story story or whatever. But, um, you know, 
you know, as much as it's covering, you know, the complicated race relations of the times, it's also, I mean, there are, it's also getting at like what, how a woman defines herself. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I would and, agree with that. And maybe I, it's more subtle than like in the awakening. It's like less yeah. on the nose, I suppose. Like yeah, the way no, that you I, think right. like names, like, like she, she defines herself and like people around her define her, like they feel like they can give her their own name. And that's like how it def- that becomes the defining characteristic of, like Armand says early in the story, um, he was reminded that she was nameless, but what right. did it matter about a name when he could give her one of the oldest and proudest in Louisiana? Right. Right. And like, so it's a little more subtle, but it's not, I don't, I don't mean you weren't saying that it wasn't there, but. No, I, you know, mm-hmm. you're right. It, it was a shock to me just because I had all of these other stories in my mind. And I, I guess I went in with a certain expectation and then thought, Oh, this is very different. Mm-hmm. So was this your first Desiree's baby reading or just your first? In a long this, time? No, this is the first time I had ever read this story. Me too. So there's lots of different ways we could start this. We could talk about, you know, the way that she kind of is making a point. Uh, we could mm-hmm. talk about the structural things here. And with short stories, I feel like um, when we're only spending one episode on it, one of the things I'm, I guess one of the, uh, one of the things I'm curious about is where you both are most interested. Because like I said, I wanted you as women to be able to come in here and speak to the story from that perspective. Um, so I don't want to like tell you what we should talk about. I'm very, I actually am normally I would start with some, you know, like let's talk about this particular thing, but I'm curious what it is that inspires or moves or whatever uh, uh, moves you about this particular story. Um, so Heidi, is there something that is most interesting to you about the story that you'd like to start with? And then we can, you know, go from there and I'll ask the same question of Angelina in a minute. It's my not, it's a non-traditional way of me doing the show, I feel like, but um, let's, let's try it. Let's see what happens. Right. I think as I read this story, as, as Angelina pointed out, there's multiple levels uh, that, that Kate Chopin, is it Chopin? How do I say it? So don't say the N, it's N. Okay. Chopin. And I Except, know that's hard for non-native speakers to make that sound, but that's the sound. So let me so just let me, just, let me okay. just jump in here because I I think that, that's how I have always learned it. But then I just to confirm it. Oh, I got So just to confirm it, I I actually looked it up, and her husband, her that wasn't her real. That was that's her her, her married name. It's her married name. Her husband pronounced it Pan with an N. Huh. Okay, so look what it says right here in the Harper. <laughs> In the That's Harper fine. American literature, it says Chopin, pronounced in the French way, as in the name of the pianist, Frédéric Chopin. I know. I looked it up. I saw that too. But I just know. <laughs> I just read that her husband did pronounce the end. So we can pronounce it how her husband. I mean, I guess it's like how when someone comes over to America, they change the way their names are said. This actually happens with so many Louisiana. It's a, it's a whole, like Brandon LeBlanc can get us going on this. Once you take the... French person out of Louisiana, a lot of times their names yeah. will be anglicized just because it's very difficult for people to say it correctly. So I'm not surprised he lived in St. Louis and said the end, but that doesn't right. mean we have to be Cretans. <laughs> it's like my, uh, my wife's family's all Croatian. Like her grandparents were first, both first gen Croatians, like first, their parents were immigrants and, uh, their name was, they say their name, Matisic, M-A-T-E-S-I-C-H, but that's not entirely, I don't think the way they were supposed to they said like in Croatia. So like all the names get slightly Americanized, I suppose, or oh, people yeah. just change their names entirely. Um, anyway, so we, now we've, we've confirmed <laughs> how to say it. Heidi, carry on. Okay. So I am going to say the author from here on out because I cannot <laughs> do that. Oh, no. <laughs> you can't take her name from her. 
I know. Um, I know. Listen to me. That's a terrible thing to do to somebody. Um, okay. Just dehumanized so, or not. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, I can't. I can't say your name, so you have no name. That's so. I'm in. I, well, now I feel like that's really symbolic, and I need to try to say Just it again. So, all right. So my me and my so my buddy Kate, who wrote this story. <laughs> Um, she she is exploring multiple levels of disparities in power. And that is the thing that I noticed as I read this story uh, is there is the issue of gender. There's the issue of race. There's also the issue of class. Uh, I mean, so far as the ownership of other human beings and the complete power that Armand has over every person in his life. I, I was way more drawn to him as a character, even than Desiree. Um, because of how complex his inner psyche seems to be connected with these power struggles. So anyway, I, I'm very interested in talking about um, the issues of disparities of power in this story. Angelina, what did you notice more? I'm well, curious. I think this will come as a surprise to no one because I'm completely obsessed with structure. So right. the structure, brilliant, masterful structure of this yes. story is what jumped Agreed. out to me. Um, so if if our listeners will reread the story and look for the fact that everything is mirrored, everything is doubled, everything is parallel, and that and it's just brilliant. So it starts with a mysterious birth. And it ends with the revelation of a mysterious birth, neither of which are the baby that that story is about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So that's fantastic. Um, then you've got the two parallel love stories between Armand's father and mother and then Armand's own love story. And the, then the fact that they're contrasted by the fact that the father loved a black woman. Mm -hmm. and was kind to the Blacks that worked on the plantation, um, whereas Armand is not kind to them and uh, loves a woman only when he thinks she's white. Uh, and the other twist, uh, structurally, being that Armand's father loved and accepted a Black child as his own, where mm -hmm. Armand himself would not. So I just thought all of the parallel mirrored scenes and the way she flipped each one on their head was so masterful. So when I got to the end, I thought, man, sounds like a Guy de Maupassant story. So I looked it up and of course discovered that she was a huge fan of the French short story master Guy de Maupassant. If our readers don't know him, they should. Uh, and so all of his stories hinge on that same kind of twist, right? Where someone's mm -hmm sinful inclination is the thing that destroys them, but they don't find it out till the end. Right. And, and each one thinks that they're absolutely doing the right thing. And then it, it, it's the twist at the end to show that the doing the quote unquote right thing is what destroys them. Right. Right. Well, and I think that that speaks very much to the, the connection between a structure and meaning in a story Right, because there's no way I could be obsessed with those disparities of power that I mentioned without exactly what you said, the development of the story through the structure, through the form, through the symbols, uh, through uh, the setting descriptions, all of that kind of weaves that together to create this masterful story that works on so many levels and okay. yet is very simple in plot. But the fact that she starts it with this brilliant misdirect about Desiree's mysterious birth, right? Mm -hmm. So she sends the whole story in one direction then flips it around the other way. I mean, it's just fantastic. Yep. And honestly, didn't see it coming. Mm -hmm. I did not see it coming. That little paragraph at the end, boom. So one of the things that came up in the last couple episodes is the idea of 
how so many short stories sort of end in a twist. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it can feel like unearned or it can feel like a trick. And we had a lot of readers commenting on Facebook about how sometimes they felt that way. Some said they didn't, some said they didn't. Um, and Jonathan Rogers was talking a little bit about how that can make it feel like a situation more than a story. He's mentioned that in the in the first one, the Rip Van Winkle. So did you feel like this ending, this sort of quick twist at the end felt, I mean, you, it seems like you both felt it was earned. Would you say that's true? Heidi, would you say that you didn't feel like it was shock for the sake of shock? Or if oh, so. No, yeah. Mm-hmm. Explains everything in the story. I mean, it, it's, the story works without it, but that is absolutely brilliant. So yeah. uh, the the perfectly crafted twist of a story has to have two elements. It has to feel like a surprise, but it also mm-hmm. has to feel expected. <laughs> and that's extremely difficult to pull off. A lot of modern stories will have a surprise, but it's so like that. No, that didn't feel natural. It didn't feel right. You know, that didn't feel that you didn't have that. Oh, yes, of course, this makes sense. If you feel like that's how I feel about M. Night Shyamalan's movies. Like, oh, here we go again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Watch me pull a dragon out of a hat this time. No, it's around it. You know, like, you've got to stop doing this. It doesn't make sense. But no, I didn't feel that way. I don't feel manipulated by Kate Chopin. That was a brilliant ending. You feel like he got his just desserts, right? This knowledge. That's a whole other theme in literature that knowledge destroys. Yes. And you actually, like- well, I was, my gosh, my little Victorian woman's lip brain just clicked into action. I realized that's actually the theme of a lot of Victorian literature is that knowledge is kept from women and that's destructive to them. So her, her not knowing her own origins, the fact that she writes the letter to her mother saying, he says, I'm not white, but surely, you know, I'm white. Tell him that suggested she did not know that she was a foundling. Well, and that's the foundling theme is something I expected us to get to. Um, because I think this is one of those stories that, that bridges a lot of like archetypal Oh, definitely. It starts off like a fairy tale. Mother wants a child, magically finds one. Yeah. So Kate Chopin is normally considered a like a naturalist. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is one of those stories that bridges the gap between like her naturalist, absolutely, into her like nineteenth-century naturalist instincts, along with this like this like uh, this this line of American Gothic. Which, which is uh-huh. hovering over it. But then also Absolutely. it's a fairy tale. And I think that, I really think that this should be read as a fairy tale. I think, I think there's, you know, like when you look at the different strains of fairy tales and Angelina can talk about this for the next 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> we probably shouldn't, shouldn't quite let you talk for that long about I it. I won't, but, I won't. You're doing great. But when you think about fairy tales, you know, you can look at the, where the, the derivation of them, right? Like there's a, the strain of the German fairy tale is going to, or like, you know, the European fairy tale is going to be a little bit different than like a Middle Eastern fairy tale, which is, and like there is a specific strain of American fairy tale with its own archetypes and its own like ways of telling stories. Um, and I think that this is an example of the kind of story which is uniquely American in that it's, you know, perhaps, you know, if you want to look at a lot of the German, like the Grimm's fairy tales or whatever, or even like um, uh, per, Perot or whatever, how do you pronounce that name, Angelina? Charles Perrault. Perrault, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, then, you know, like if sometimes those come across as if they're like, they were used to warn children about things, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, very deliberate. They're literary tales, not folk tales. Right. Whereas this feels like it's uniquely American and then it's addressing uniquely American like neuroses almost, right? Oh, it's not, it's, and it's not, it doesn't feel like a story that's like, because of this story, you should go out and think about people differently. I mean, I think that's probably what she would hope. But as much as anything else, it feels like it's addressing and giving voice to um, like the things that trouble the American psyche. Absolutely. No, I love that. Absolutely. And and so just to add to what you're saying, um, there's a dreamlike feeling across this whole story. It's very, she's always, Desiree's always lying down, right? She's always lying down and half yep. asleep and lounge. It's very dreamlike. That's very fairy tale-ish. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. So Americans do have this angst about their own beginnings, mm-hmm. right? And that they, they don't have aristocratic names and they don't well, have a connection. And, and, but the naming thing is key too. And I don't mean to interrupt you, yes. but we talked no, that's about- That's also a big fairy tale theme. And we talked about how like Kay Chopin's name was changed or like that's, a, that's such an American thing. Like we, so many people come here and their names change and they become like, they, they, be, they become a little, they almost become homogenized, right? Like they become- they lose their distinctiveness. And, and so like, that's what's happening here. That's why naming is such an in, intensely important theme in this, in this story, I think. Um, yes. Naming and go, origins, who yeah. are your parents? You know, so who are your people? And also the two contrasting plantations. So Valmonde being the more, the newer, but more profitable more alive one really. And, and so, I mean, as soon as she goes to Labrie, it's death. I mean, all the images are of death and decay, dying aristocracy, like just multiple levels of meaning there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Which that's a Southern literature theme right there. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> dying plantations. Yes. And well, crazy mm-hmm. spinsters living in them. And oh, I mean, there's like, you could go a million stories with that. Well, the foundling thing itself is a fairy tale trope, right? Like basically yes. every fairy tale is in some degree related to the foundling. Well, um, they all start with a child of mysterious origin. Mm-hmm. And almost it's always a mother who's infertile, who's desperately wanting a child. You mean that like the foundling fairy tale ones? Yeah. So um, Sleeping Beauty and Snow yeah. White and all of, all of those start with that. But, some mom and, is crying that they want a baby. Well, I'm like, if you want to go like, if it's a matter of degree, even like a Hansel and Gretel, right? Like it's a child who's lost, which is not, mm-hmm. not the true foundling, but it's still related. It's a Jace foundling adjacent thematically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The foundling story is the subset of the child of mysterious origin. And that connects it back to the myths that have the child of mysterious origin. Mm-hmm. Well, so, there's a lot of mythological themes or mythological feel to this story. Yeah. Very, talk about that. Uh, yeah. The stone image. Right, that's where Desiree is found. She's found under the shadow of a stone image. And that is where Armand also sees her and falls in love with her with this powerful force that sweeps away all obstacles compared to a a prairie fire, um, an avalanche, I think. Mm. And then Mm. later, the story ends with, I think a human sacrifice image hmm. with Armand throwing all of the, the everything stuff. that he's yes the baby so everything like he's he's burning her alive there mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. very symbolic sense and so there is the fairy tale theme there is the American Gothic there is the realism and then there's also this like very primeval primitive mythological feel to some of these big ideas in the story and 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 the fact that. 
Armand has destroyed his own heir. Yes. That also points to the dying aristocracy, right? There's there's no life here. And so I, I'll say, gosh, there's so many things to say. So one, I'll, I'll piggyback on what she said about Armand find, falls in love with her at the spot where she was also found as a child. So if mm-hmm. we want to read the Victorian women's lit way to read this would be that she's been infantilized, right? She's still yes. a baby. She's still, yes. she is exactly the same when Armand meets her as she is at the beginning of the story, a little helpless baby crying for Dada. Right. Mm-hmm. And so then here comes Armand, ex- same exact setup, and he's going to be dead and he whisk her up. And and so, yes, there's the fairy tale dreamlike state, but there's also the fact that she's just a baby. She's just a helpless baby lying there with this baby. Mm-hmm. We never see her doing anything other than acting like a baby. But one more thing about the foundling fairy tale motif. I don't want to forget this. Um, so when a story starts, a fairy tale starts with a child of mysterious origin, very often the archetypal pattern that plays out is that the twist at the end is that the foundling who everybody just assumes is you know, a peasant turns out to really be the prince or the princess. Mm-hmm. And so she's tapping into that same idea here. There's nothing wrong with Desiree's blood, right? In terms of right. the, the story, right? She, she's the one that actually has the aristocratic blood not Ormond that and a lot of fairy tales work with that same twist at the end so then it deviates so then Angelina instead of the child being a redemptive force the child is takes the opposite direction right rejected by the father uh, carried off into the chaotic abyss by the mother right so what's the deviation there like how do you how do you interpret that well the 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 baby is the is the truth of the seeker. Right? At the end, yes. I was thinking it's that theme of the truth will out. Mm-hmm. And so the baby is the truth. Right. It wasn't the truth about Desiree, but it was the truth about Armand. And one of the things I was left wondering was, would he still have rejected the baby? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, the baby is the evidence of the lie of Armand's life, which obviously right. he can't cope with. That's why he's burning everything at the end. So, right. Uh, although I suppose... I suppose the ending could be somewhat open-ending. Like, I, I suppose it could be a repentant fire, but that's not the way I think either no. one of us read it. No, no, no. Oh, no. I, I think he's no. angry and he's enraged yes. about all of it. And he's going to burn the letter that proves he's not white. So right. I think he's kind of, in a lot of ways, the inversion of, I don't know, like the Prince Charming or the, whoever the- Oh, definitely. Prince, oh, yeah. came and kissed Snow White or whatever it was. His kiss destroyed her. So, because if you look at the, um, or even like the, the um, Sleeping Beauty scenario where she's asleep for forever. Because if you look at the way in the third, fourth paragraph, I guess, it says, talking about how he fell in love with her. Mm -hmm. And it says, it was no wonder when she stood one day against the stone pillar in whose shadow she'd lain asleep 18 years before that Armand riding by and seeing her there had fallen in love with her. So that the way she phrases that Mm -hmm. is really interesting because she like ties like the lane asleep 18 years before concept when I first read that, you know, it, the, there's a, there's an allusion there to being asleep for all 18 years and he comes and he kisses her and wakes her up. So she's playing with that, except that she's been there all the time and he finally comes and he sees her. Right. Um, and the, like Des, Desiree means desired one. I was just yeah. going to say that. And so and that so, also fits into the idea that really it's his own desire. He's in love with not her. Well, but yes. the, okay. So that, but that's where the inversion comes in with like the classic, Prince Charming. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Because he doesn't. Rede- his his love is not redemptive for her. Well, but but the one who is redemptive for her is the madam, madame, right? So yes. it, yeah. it says she 
in time abandoned every speculation but the one that Desiree had been sent to her by a beneficent providence to be the child of her affection. And yes. so she accepts the child and does offer desire or affection. Like she does desire this child for mm -hmm. her as a gift from God, right? Right. Whereas, but she's also, Desiree is also called an idol of Valmada. Right. And there's right. that mythological yeah. thing in there too. So even to Madame Valmada, she is, I would argue she is an object of desire to her. I think that that's probably true. And that also fits in with Kate Chopin's other themes, right? Like of women not having a full humanity. Desiree is just the plaything of everybody in this book. Yes. She although, is the desired I mean, one. Although I don't want to be too hard on Madame Valmondé because... Well, that's she, where the power thing comes in. Right. I mean, she immediately assesses that the baby is black. Immediately. Right. right. And uh, does not reject the baby or Desiree. I think mm -hmm. that she... I think her mind goes to the same place Armand's mind goes, right? Like, well, obviously, Desiree's black. We didn't right. know. But that doesn't change her love of Desiree or the baby so that when Armand rejects her and Desiree writes to her, she says, come home to your mother, the mother who loves you. Right. Which, okay. And so I do think she has genuine affection there, which is to be contrasted to Armand's. On the other hand, putting it in the larger context of the kinds of things Kate Chopin likes to talk about, then Desiree still, her only choices are between these two houses, right? She can right. either be Armand's plaything or she can be her mother's plaything, but she doesn't, there's no there. Okay. So in a modern story, she would just be like, well, if this guy's going to abandon his wife and child, I'm going to move into an apartment down the street and live my life. Right. That's how this story would go. And friends would right. rally around and say, that guy's a jerk and you can do this girl. But in this world, if a, a man rejects, this is like the Roman pater familius, right? Like he says no to the baby and then that's it. Now they're dead. Yep. Yes. Well, in his, I, I, I mean, I think the twist at the end is, surprising but there are clues throughout the whole story when you go back and read it he is always associated with black and dark imagery like the language surrounding armand is uh he's he's dark his dark handsome face that's marred by his frowns um his home labrie which i'm curious about that name i have some thoughts about that uh that he is is a sheltered steep, black, solemn, shadowed. Uh, mm -hmm. She compares her skin to his and says, my, my hand is whiter than yours, Armand. Right. So that's, the, and, that's where like the first clue is, it's like, it's not the, 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 uh, well, go on, go on. That's the first clue. <laughs> I, maybe so. I think well, that's, that's the, the one first that time. Yes. I think that's the time when you can say, Oh, maybe this is coming, but I think there's clues with the language that Chopin, I said it wrong. It's okay. Just Kate, roll with it. Yes. I know. I'm from California. So, I'm so um, bad that's... that I've like jumped on this, but no, you're fine. Keep going. No, Keep don't. Going. No, I want to do it right. Um, that she, there are clues throughout the story. And I even think there's clues that he knows. Oh. But I think there's little clues through here that his rage and hatred towards her is really about his own self-loathing. Like he knows, knows, or he like instinctively knows. Well, he burns this letter, right? Like, but, and the story never tells us when he read the letter. I, I mean, in reading through it multiple times this week, 
I'm wondering if he knew all along about his origins. Okay, so, it doesn't say he just, you mean, because it doesn't say he just discovered it at that moment when he was entering it. Like he maybe had read the letter years before. Right. That, that's very interesting. I mean, I did not occur to me before you said that, but it is a little vague. I, though I assumed as I read it, because it says there was remnant of one back in the drawer from which he took. So I guess the way I read it was that as he's taking out all of Desiree's love letters, there's also this fragment of a letter and he finds it, but it's vague. This is the moment we discover it. You're right. It doesn't say he is, although I wonder if he would not have destroyed it had he found it earlier. Maybe. And I think that's the strongest argument for that, for that perspective, for sure. Although if you take this as this sacrificial fire of immolation of his past, it makes sense that he would burn it here in the archetypal sense. But your, your, your argument is sound is just destroy the first, the first time you find it. But I think, uh, you know, in a short story, every word is important, everything, as y'all know. And so I kept wondering why, why did Desiree specifically point out that the baby is crying so loudly that Armand could hear the baby while he was at LeBlanche's cabin, right? So I'm thinking, I'm wondering if this cry is this kind of echo of uh, his origins kind of across the plantation, like this um, call to remember who he is from his own son, something that he already knew. That cry harkens back to the first page for me too, where it says that the baby says the one thing the baby could say was Dada. Um, yeah. And like uh-huh. that idea uh-huh. of it crying out for, you know, to be for affection, like for safety, for affection, for, for right. all the things that right. love. Well, and his love. cruelty towards his slaves, mm-hmm. I think goes points to maybe an element of self-loathing on his part, a desire to destroy his own blackness because he's kind to them when he thinks his son is white. Almost as if, oh, thank God, as long as this baby's okay, then maybe I can forgive myself for being black. There's something to that, I think, because there is a strain of that, uh, of that sort of story. Like that's a theme much fairly broadly across 19th century American literature. Like you'll see it even in like uh, Mark Twain's Puddinghead Wilson, where it's about Mm -hmm. two brothers who are both Mm -hmm. 132nd black. And so like one, one is like looks a little bit more white and he can get away with being white, but he always knows that he's not really white. And so like, there's this self-loathing factor that comes into it. I think that's kind of under the surface there. And I think that's one of the things that what, I think that's one of the things that Kate Chopin is trying to get at here is that whether it's um, because you're a woman or because you're black or, or whatever you are, like we so often create, like we cultivate a, a, culture or an environment, I guess is the better word, where you are forced to, to loathe yourself. Right. And like mm-hmm. that, that's the tragedy. Um, and that like, so that, that you, you are basically forced to disappear among the reeds and the willows that grow thick along the banks of the sleep dug, sluggish, deep sluggish bay, bayou and never come back again. That's also very fairy tale. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's a, 
I mean, I mean, yeah, she's not dressed like a woman. She wanders off in her nightgown and slippers. And the fact that the thorns are tearing at that is so fair to so sleeping beauty because it's Mm -hmm. the opposite of sleeping beauty, right? And the sleeping beauty, the sleeping curse, she's covered by the thorns and the men who tried to get to her are ripped to shreds by the thorns. But Mm -hmm. when the true prince comes, the thorns turn to flowers and then everything because the curse is reversed. But so that's all been flipped on its head, right? His kiss has not awakened her to life. Now she's she's actually going back through the thorns and sleep is death and the thorns are ripping her up and now she disappears into them. It says a lot about the sort of cultural, well, there's a lot of cultural implications mm-hmm. in the sorts of stories that, that a culture tells about itself. Um. At the, you know, comparing those two things and thinking about the way cult, those two cultures would view each other, like the culture of Sleeping Beauty and the culture of Desiree's Baby, I think are really interesting. I, is there differences in the in the version? I'm trying to remember the versions of Sleeping of, of Sleeping Beauty. Like po- uh, there are small mm-hmm. differences, but between the French and the German, no, it's basically the same story. Okay, I'm trying to yeah, because there's some of them. The differences are much bigger. Like at the end of mm-hmm. Cinderella, Cinderella, right? Cinderella, I still think the end of Cinderella where the, the sisters get their eyes gouged up by the birds is the best version. It is the <laughs> only good one. It's the only good one. The grim one is what is the, what is the grim or Perot that came back and made it like where it's Perot slightly. added the fairy he's, godmother and the rules of behavior. Yeah, he, he sanitizes everything. Come in early. <laughs> but he had very specific reasons for that. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't, one of the things I thought about after reading the story was it's, it's tragic even without the twist, right? Like we don't want to well, miss that. I was going to ask right. that, if she really did turn out to be black and he rejected her and the child, that's still horrible, right? <laughs> right, right. The twist is not what makes it horrible. <laughs> the, the, the twist is what creates all the multiple levels about America's identity and, you know, self-loathing and the fact that we don't know where we came from and we're struggling. We don't know who we are. And, um, well, and the twist is also what resolves all the dissonances that are occurring throughout the story. So like as you're reading yes. it, it feels like so you talked about the structure, both of you did. As you're reading it, it feels like there are these structural things that you're, you, even if you're not naming them, you are feeling their, yes. their, the lack of resolution that they're offering. So this then ties those together and provides a resolution that, that solves the dissonance. That okay, I've literally been sitting here this whole time trying to answer my own question. And I think I got, I think I got the answer. So Do we know what the question is. I will tell you what the question was. <laughs> Why does she describe Armand as having the spirit of Satan come onto him? Uh-huh. And, uh, I think it, I think it's the, the reversal of the fairy tale because the prince is a Christ figure. He's redemptive. He brings to life, but the prince in this case is satanic. So he's bringing all this death. Right. Right. Well, and interesting, the, um, it says towards the end for me, it's like a page off. He thought almighty God had dealt cruelly and unjustly with him. Yes. He felt somehow that he was paying him back in kind when he stabbed thus into his wife's soul. Um, there's like a very um, Lucifer thing uh-huh. going on there. Like feeling oh, right. God is treating him unjustly. So she's playing, yes. she's going back to that. Going, She's going back to that, 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 that uh, illusion again, I guess. But yeah, he obviously I mean, plans to continue this secret. Because he's destroying all evidence of everything that's happened. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. It, the The idea of inverting a fairy tale and then creating a fairy tale out of that inversion um, is like so American Gothic. It's like, mm-hmm. I think it's one of the things that makes Gothic American literature and like a, a lot of American horror literature um, kind of unique 
and like what give, are some examples of some american gothic like are you talking about edgar Allan poe or something different well i think that? i think i think like there are elements of that strain in there i mean i i don't know american gothic literature is still being written now like I, it doesn't it's not as tied to I think it's more time. It's not a leading question. I mean, I, I, I don't know American literature, so I'm genuinely curious. Well, I think um, some authors like this. Uh, I think you'll run into it with, um, well, O'Connor fits in it, but mm-hmm. you'll um, try to think of some current ones. Um, the guy who wrote Volt, shoot, Alan Heathcock. Um, there's a bunch of current ones I could give. Um, I think you get it in uh, Glassbell. I think you'll get it. Like, I think the next story has that strain. I think you'll even get it in, um, what's the book about the, the, um, Rosemary's baby, um, early, 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 early Stephen King. Like, I think, um, um, what's the early one about the vampires? Um, Salem's lot. Salem's lot. I think there's, I was just thinking about that. Same sort of Massachusetts. There's a lot of Massachusetts weird stuff in America. Uh Um, I mean, Uh you know, and like, I think American Gothic is less a genre than more characteristics of, of Okay. Of okay. It. That's how does, I would So does Faulkner have some of that? Oh yeah, Faulkner uh, for sure. Yeah. Cormac McCarthy for sure. So Rose for Emily. Okay, okay. Yeah. All right. A lot so a lot of dying aristocracy imagery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's you know, if you think Gothic architecture and like it's all the architecture is all crumbling. I think that's that's a very specific way of yeah, like that's a very like that's an image that is helpful to think about it. Um, but, but I think that it, it's taking often American horror literature, which is more broad than more of the genre than, than Gothic in my mind is often inverting traditional European in particular archetypal ways of telling stories and it's creating its scenarios it's scenarios are often similar, but then they've, then they vary. I've got to think about this more to, to, um, to be, this able is to, very to, to be able to defend that as a thesis. But I think that that's um, you, like a lot, because if you look at a lot of the um, the imagery, the archetypes, the motifs, the things that are used in the stories, they're very similar to what you're going to get in like a German fairy tale. You know, the woods, the the river, the, all that kind of stuff. But then they're used in a very specific way and often they're inverted and the stories often resolve, are, are resolved in much more tragic ways than they are in hopeful mm-hmm. ways or the, the hope or there's like stasis where the resolution is very, well, it's sort of emotionally incomplete or emotionally unfulfilling unless you really spend a lot of time thinking about it. <laughs> Sorry, my phone's ringing <laughs> that it's the week before the conference. So, you know, <clears throat> I can't um, anyway. even imagine you're doing so great. I don't know how you're keeping it together. <laughs> am I? I don't know if I am. <laughs> um, you're faking it. Well, <laughs> I'm really into this. I, I've been, I'm really into the idea of the fact that Desiree means desired. Uh-huh. Like normally, mm-hmm. I don't love on the nose names, so to speak. Mm-hmm. This is one of those ones where it works so well. Well, it works Still here hard. because it's a pretty common. There's, a, I mean, I grew up with a lot of girls named Desiree. It's a very common name in Louisiana. One of the things I like about it, though, is like it works for both the themes that we've talked about. Both the themes of like w- women like womanhood, like right, like, but then also the idea of uh, like this, the the idea of race, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Like to neither of like women and the slaves of whatever race they were, because it wasn't just you know the Africans that were enslaved, but they whether you they were both they weren't really desired for the right reasons, right? Right. Like both of them mm-hmm. were desired for reasons that were sort of counter to their dehumanizing. They were dehumanizing reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So that mm-hmm. just the name of the character right there says says so much. What is 
What is his name again? What does that mean? Do you know, Angelina? Armand. Armand. Yeah. Uh, if it has a translation, I don't know what it is. Let's Google it. I don't. I don't think it means anything. I think it might just be a name. The La Blanche thing is interesting too, because that yes. means like pure or blank or white, obviously, and like he's the a white he can, one. Mm-hmm. He can hear the baby crying from the cabin that is named right. after the white one. So like he's Which in the cabin. He's in the pure right. white cabin, and then the the. I think she's a female slave that he's sleeping with. That is what I think of LaBlanche. And I have wondered if those little boys, the the quadroon boys, well, she, are that's his how, that's children. That's how Desiree figures out the baby's yes. name. She looks back yes. and forth. Now that's, so yes, you could argue that about Armand. Certainly that mm-hmm. went on. Um, and certainly there are a well, lot he, of mixed race mean, slaves. Do you mean that he looked, she looks at the baby that's that's fanning or the child is fanning the baby yes. and says, Oh, that looks just like, or well, like she, it says that she looks back and forth between them and then it dawns on her. Yes. Right. So you could take that one of two ways or both, which I'm, I mean, I wonder if it's both, but you could look at either. She notices that this is a mixed race child, like this boy fanning him. Right. right. Or that's the, that that's the first level, the first reading. Such, yes. Yes, or she sees such a resemblance between them that it occurs to her that this boy is actually Armand's son because he compares her when, when she's, she makes the comment to him. Yes, yes. Desiree makes the comment about her, the her, her hand white, being whiter. Child. Yes, and he says, your hand is as white as LeBlanc's. That's his cruel, and it, she adds, she says, cruel, he said to her cruelly or something like that is in the story. And so I, I think he's comparing her to a slave woman that he's sleeping with saying, you're just like my, this other, to me, you are just like her. What do you make? You are a slave whore to me. What do you make of the part though, that like after the baby's born, he gets married. And then after the baby's born, it seems like he's, let's see, had saw that that had softened his imperious and exact or exacting greatly because he thinks the baby's white. Right. Well, and I think that, they, that the I mean, color doesn't come in right away. Well, but, right. Well, but, so, but do you, so you think that he thinks that, oh, I'm going to get away with this? Yes. Because this baby doesn't look like the other ones? Yes. I think at this point, I, I would argue that he knows all along that he's black. However, I mean, that's not definitive in the story, but I think that fits here. I think that explains why he's kind to his slaves after his son is born. Is now he feels like this son has kind of settled that demon for him. He doesn't have to flagellate himself through flagellating his slaves anymore. That relieves that burden that he feels and that self-loathing that he feels. I think that if he knows all along, that that's the thing that explains that action. One of the things that's interesting is that it seems like she starts to understand it though, because it's mm-hmm. so it says after three months, whether when the baby was three months old, mm-hmm. she awoke one day to the conviction there was something in the air menacing her peace. Yes. Which is a very yes. interesting sentence. But then it says, yes. at first it was too subtle to grasp. It had only been a disquieting suggestion, an air of, air of mystery among the blacks, unexpected visits from far off neighbors who could hardly account for their coming. Uh-huh. So it's like, so obviously they sort of giving, the slaves they know it's a black baby. They're all talking yeah. about it. Well, Zandrine right. knows from the beginning because she won't even yes. look at won't Madame Valmonde. Yes. So. so a lot of the dialogue is vague enough to read in multiple uh-huh. ways. Right. So, yes. so we, we don't know directly in the story why Armand is so happy 
after the mm-hmm. baby is born. We only know that Desiree says, oh, it's because he's glad it's a boy, someone to bear his name, which that, of course, is significant. Uh-huh. On multiple Absolutely. Um, and then, but then she says, he says that's not why he's happy. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. That he would have loved a girl just as well, but I know it isn't true. Um, so we don't know. Right. I mean, I don't know that Desiree is the most reliable... <laughs> person sure. of Armand's thoughts and feelings here well the narrator says that it says she says specifically what desiree said was true oh does she I does remember it? that yeah so it says where? so right after that where he's she's describing to uh madame Vermont. no no i read that so she describes why she thinks he's happy and then she goes on to say he's been treating the slaves better and that's how i read what desiree said was true that marriage had made him better Oh. He was a happier person. Yeah, marriage and later the birth of his son had softened Armand's, I don't know how to say the last name, Angelina Help. Aubigny. Um, okay, imperious and exacting nature greatly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I did That's look up Armand. It's a German name, interestingly enough. I always thought huh. it was a French name, but there's a lot of German, French, and yeah. American Louisiana, so that's not surprising. Also in mean, Europe. It means <sighs> army man or soldier. There you go. Huh. Huh. Well, I mean, that needs very little explanation, right? Yes. (laughs) Valmonde is a combination of valet and monde, meaning valley and the world. So that's very interesting. Hmm. But why doesn't she go back to, why doesn't she go back there? So I think it's because. Well, do we know she doesn't? I assume um, she I think much. so. Well, I think we know that. Well, again, it just says she disappeared into the bayou and never came back. Just yeah. I mean, so part of me wonders like <clears throat> so in a in a pan- she leaves without all of her she just leaves in her nightgown, right? Right. So like that to me implies a sense of sort of panic or not thinking. So then she just takes off, but she says specifically she doesn't take the road. So to yes. me it seems like she maybe has somewhere in mind that she's going because because the road is implicit in the idea of like the road is that it takes you somewhere but she decides not to take that she decides to go the long way around so i don't think you necessarily have to say she goes off in the wilderness and dies it could say that it could be that she goes there you could except that kate chopin has a habit of having her heroines commit suicide by drifting off into something and then she just lets them wander off like she right well no that's true if we're true True. If we're, I'm just saying, if we're just looking at the story. No, you're right. Though. Sure. You're right. So, okay. So, why does she die? So, I, I read it again just a little while ago and marked every single time that Armand seems the least bit unhappy. Her response is, "I'm going to die. I'm going to mm-hmm. die. I'm going to die." Yeah. So that has a lot of you know Victorian womanhood themes as well. Her only existence is to please him. Where does that leave her if he is not pleased? Right. And he can't be pleased. This is not something that can be forgiven and overcome. He has completely rejected her. But it's really himself that he's rejecting. Oh, totally. Like that's the that. thing that's so brilliant about this ending is that, he, and he knows that it's, she's a sacrifice. But if you take the, the name Valmond, Valmonde, um, according to the meaning that you gave it, which that's so helpful, I do think you could argue thematically that she has to just disappear into the wilderness, right? She's rejecting the world. She doesn't go back. Like she's disappearing into this sluggish kind of sucking primeval chaos with this baby who has no place. 
Yes. I don't think she can go back to Valmonde, the world, mm-hmm. the valley of right. the world. It's not a safe place anymore. So I just looked up what Labrie means. You're going to love this. Shelter. Shelter. Oh, well. Yes. Which mm-hmm. it ironically was not. Yeah, no, right. Version of everything. Unless it's a shelter for his own self-loathing that he's built, right? The shelter like for the lie. Yeah, the shelter, the state of decay, and you're like you're what you keep reminding us this idea of the the decaying aristocracy in the antebellum period. Like this is this is his yeah, bastion. Just wait till it for Emily. Right. Well, mm-hmm. I love that story. Yeah, but this is his. This is his bastion for his own cruelty and prejudice. I think it is a shelter. It's just a dark, forbidding, demonic shelter. Yes. And so the first time I read it, um, well, I'm, I'm just trying to say that she, the use of her word dark is, is, is also multi-level, right? Everything's yes. so dark. And yes. when I read it, I read it as like dark and brooding and evil and doom, which of course it is. But if he, I mean, the twist is that he turns out to be black. So she's obviously uh-huh. foreshadowing, of, that whole time. foreshadowing yeah. of that. Hmm. This is just a really, really amazing. This is a remarkable story. What is that story? What's that? Okay. It's a fifties movie. And I think it might have Warren Beatty in it and about the very light-skinned black girl who's like the daughter of a maid with a white family. And so she passes herself off as white. Oh, I don't know. Splendor in the that. Grass. Is that a movie? I'm, I'm Googling that. That is a movie that has, um, I've never seen that movie, but it's with, uh, um, I can't remember her name. Elizabeth no, that's something. Natalie Wood. No, Natalie this might've been Lana Turner. Okay. Uh, Anyway, it's just interesting to me how many stories, um, movie or are, are, are written, um, revolve around the the particular um, struggle of a of a light skinned black person. Like they seem to not fit mm-hmm. into either world. I think Spike Lee even made some movies about that theme. And I know that um, George Washington Cable, another Louisiana writer, wrote a book called The Grand Deceams, which is about a family. Um, it's actually about two families that both have the same names. One's the white family, one's the black family, because obviously somewhere along the way, the, the gene pool got mixed up. Um, you know, I hear myself say that. I'm like, that is a horrible way to say some slave owner raped a slave at some point. <laughs> but there right. you go. Um, right. the, the book that just won the Pulitzer Prize um, by Jasmine Ward, Sing Unburied Sing, is about that. That's a remarkable book, by the way. That's an incredible story. So it seems like that's still... I mean, I'm pretty sure this movie was in the 1960s that I'm trying to remember the name of. I'm, I'm going to Google every Lana Turner movie till I can find it. But uh, <laughs> it's just interesting that that's still such a part of our cultural mm-hmm. consciousness, right? I mean, what does it even mean to be black or white when there's so much racial mixing? And yeah, that book, The Grand Deceams by George Washington Cable, that's probably not an author a lot of people know of, but it's in a, it's in a Penguin Classics edition and it's a very mm-hmm. good book. And it, and it deals with the two families, both named the Grand Deceams, but one is the white plantation family and one is a black family. And, but the black family is like so much better as human beings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and huh. it just, yeah, it's an older book. It's an old book. It's written in the 1800s, but it's very good. But hmm. y'all what keep a, talking while I look up Lana Turner's filmography. I, I'm really intrigued by what she does towards the end of the story. Imitation of Life. That was it. Whew. Okay. 1959. There we go. Okay. Who's the, was it with Warren Beatty? 
He would have been very young then. No. You'd say Warren Beatty. I don't think he could have yeah. been Warren Beatty. Because, like, um, he got big with in like the early 70s. Um, Lana Turner, Sandra Day, John uh, Gavin. Yes. Deals with issues of race, class, and gender. It was an adaptation mm-hmm. of a Fanny Hearst novel of the same name. There you go. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, this is my final thought on the story, and then I'll let you guys each go uh, jump, jump in and offer your final thoughts. I'm really intrigued, and I'm not sure what it means but I like what she's doing here towards the end of the story where it talks about how she takes, they have the conversation. He says, she says, you want me to go? And he says, yes, I want you to go. Um, So she turns away. She walks away towards the door, hoping he calls her back. She says goodbye. He doesn't answer her. And that's the last blow. So she goes to Zandrine, takes the baby. And then it says that she descends the steps, walks away under the live oak branches and then we get this, like the what she's doing here with the variety of nature, like the journey that she's going on is interesting. So she's on the steps. She walks into the live oak branches, which are this. I mean, if you have, if you come into Charleston, you'll see live oak, live oak mm-hmm. trees. I mean, these are like one of the essential plants of the South, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's still some that are 500 years old around in the Charleston area. I mean, these are these are regal. Um, they would line. They would line the roads of these plantations, and I mean, they're you know, if you just Google, it if you haven't seen it, I'm sure most people know what they are. But then it says it was an October afternoon. The sun was just sinking, and out in the still fields, the Negroes were picking cotton. So we're kind of like, these are the, the two distinct natural settings, almost in oppos- opposition to each other. Are these live oaks mm-hmm. that would probably be lining the plantation house, and then the fields that are just in like the shade, like the 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 plantation owners could get it out of the heat. They could sit in the shade of the live oak trees. They could, like there's, you know, it's a very you could create an environment that is pleasant there. And opposition to that is the the slaves out under the hot sun just picking cotton hour after hour. And so she is realized she she's leaving what she thought she was a part of. And now she is walking out into the fields, which she feels like now that's where she belongs. She belongs out there under the hot sun. She doesn't belong by the regal, by these regal trees. And like in order to stay and to enable, to enable to allow himself to stay under the regal live oak trees and not out in the cotton fields, he has to send her away and burn every memory of her. Mm -hmm. And then she, but she leaves, she even leaves the cotton fields, right? So she leaves that and she, without, putting on shoes or any garments or anything. She takes, she, she, she walks across a deserted field. There's not even cotton in that field where the stubble bruised her tender feet. So delicately shod and tore her thin gown to shreds. And then she disappears among the reeds and the willows that grow thick along the banks of the sleep bayou. Sleek, deep sluggish bayou. Deep sluggish in my brain keeps going <laughs> to sleep. Um, <laughs> combining the words and she doesn't come back again. So like the transition, the, the little mini journey that, Kate Chopin takes us there. I, th- I think is fascinating from the live mm. oaks to the cotton fields and like the two things those represent and where the two characters, you know, how the, ca- the two characters could sort of fit in to one of those two things. Um, but it's uh, the actual opposite where they end up is the opposite of where they actually belong. But then she rejects even that. And she just goes out into the swamp where like, you don't, you don't this, what do you do? What do you use the swamp for? Like mm. you don't, I mean, you could drain. Well, it's not it. a swamp; it's a body. Rice, right? Which well, that's not the same thing. Um. 
the reeds in the willows. I mean, it's you could you could you could drain it like they would do and grow the the rice in it, but it's not used for the same things. Um, it's certainly representative of something very different than a cotton field is or the or the row of live oaks. It's mm. wild and untamed and dangerous. Right, right. So one of the things that. And I haven't fully wrapped my head around this. So I'm this is your final thought then. All right, this is my final. I'm going to give my <laughs> off the cuff, crazy read of this. She disappeared among the willows. We're also told that the baby's cradle is made of willows. Huh. And there's a connection there. She's still a baby. She has a baby. And also like, this is, okay, I'm going to go full crazy on y'all. To me, it reads like she re-entered the womb. Like she came mysteriously and left mysteriously, right? She goes into the water and the willows. Mm. So there you go. That's my crazy final thought. I like that. I think it works. I think you can defend that. Mine is to go back to the feminist issues in this story. The Where'd you go? Are you there? All right. My, my final thought has to do with the feminist issues in this story uh, of the idea of womanhood in an oppressive culture. Everything that Desiree says in this story is true and nobody ever believes her. She's, uh, we call that in, in, in counseling terms, we call that gaslighting, right? When someone uh, is speaks the truth to defend themselves, but then is told you're crazy, you're hysterical, you're emotional. And mythologically, that's, that's the Cassandra. Exactly. Exactly. She has this Cassandra-like role. It's exactly what I was going to say, Angelina. She has this very mythological role uh, that she is the one saying, no, like it is a lie. It's a lie. It's not true. And she's right. And mm -hmm. Armand knows she's right. And he sends her away anyway. And that happens even with her own mother. She says, please defend me. Tell them that I'm white. And she is. But the response is, no, 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 come back and be my baby again. So there's this woman, this thwarted womanhood within Desiree. She's doomed to always be an object of desire uh, who is either embraced or rejected, never fully herself. And that is one of the great tragedies of this story. So it got me thinking about the name Cassandra. And of course, it mm -hmm. means unheeded prophetess. Yes. But it also means, and I don't know when it took on this meaning, but apparently it also means helper of men. Huh. Interesting. So, whatever. <laughs> yep. Could have been redemptive, right? There's this point, kind of, there's, it's kind of like in Romeo and Juliet, right? Where there's this point, it could have been a comedy, but instead it ends up a tragedy. Could have had the fairy tale ending, and instead it ends up this inversion or distortion. So. But you know, again, uh, going back to one of the first things you said, it, it's the it's the it's the connection between structure and meaning, right? Yes. If mm -hmm. she's if Kate Chopin is interested in these women's issues, of course she's going to turn a fairy tale on its head because uh -huh. these women were not having the fairy tale ending. This 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 was not Prince Charming where marriage made everything happily ever after. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that totally makes sense to me. And so I, I just want to um, say that if if our listeners have enjoyed Kate Chopin and want to check out some of the rest of her stuff, please make sure you read it in the context of this Victorian world. And that will help you to understand what she's wrestling with. If you read The Awakening as a modern American woman who has so many choices and options and unprecedented historical freedom and self-expression and, and humanity, right? Um, it, it would be very easy to be dismissive of these female characters. Like, why is she so unhappy? Well, because she doesn't have your life. <laughs> she hasn't been given an education. She's not reading books and have a life of the mind. She doesn't live in a community. She doesn't have a husband who respects her mind and input and treats her like a helpmate and a, and a legitimate member of the home. These women didn't even raise their own children. Servants raise the children. Like, so, I mean, we're homeschool moms who have enjoyed staying home with our children, have very fulfilling and active days as we educate our children. But what if we had a live-in person who did that for us? Like, what would I do all day long? Uh, sit and look pretty and try not to make a fuss and mm-hmm. see how people did not enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> Angelina, anything else you? I mean, uh, well, Angelina, I'm good. All right, Heidi. I've said all the things. I have a voice. <laughs> <laughs> You're not gonna wander off into the bayou willows. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. Called the bayou a swamp. I'm gonna go cry down. Send you a Louisiana geography book. And <laughs> we build homes on the bayou, but not on the swamp. <laughs> well, in um. Well, I know that's a different conversation. I was going to say, yeah. there's a, um, you, you need to watch um, Down by Law. Have you ever seen Down by Law? No. You should. Oh, yeah. Okay. Watch Down by Law. I was going to bring it up during this show, but now I have. And that's all I'm going to say. Okay. Well, that's it. So, I'm so glad that you picked this story. I had never read it before and quite enjoyed it. Me too. Now I'm feeling like I want to revisit Kate Chopin. <laughs> Heidi, you probably, you and I probably shouldn't, because if we do, then we're just going to read all the names in the wrong way. I know. We'll say it all wrong, get the geography I'll do all wrong. Do a Cersei audio That's edition. Right. Yes, please do. Do like a pronunciation guide and a, ge- and a geography lesson. I, I need that in I'll my have life. To explain please all about do. How, uh, back in the day of the awakening, Grand Isle was this big tourist place. It got destroyed by a hurricane. Um, so that's why it's just a total deserted mess now but at the time that she wrote that it was a huge tourist destination and just oh. quite the fashionable cosmopolitan place to live well see you just learned something new thank you angelina <laughs> but if you were to look up grand isle now you would you would be like what is happening <laughs> less grand yeah oh very much less thanks to some hur- <laughs> it's right on the coast so thanks to some hurricane there is no more grand in grand isle Mm-hmm. That's a sad loss. It still gets all. battered. It still gets mm-hmm. battered by hurricanes. It's it's right on the tip. It's like got a bullseye on it. Don't you want to live in a town that has a bullseye on it for hurricanes? <laughs> okay, so a bayou is a is sm- it's like a smaller waterway, is what it says on americaswetland.com. That makes oh. sense. Well, you can fish in a bayou. I wouldn't fish in a swamp. I okay. Yeah, that makes sense. It just says it's a bayou is relatively small or sluggish waterway through lowlands and sometimes swamps. So like the swamp, so it's a genus and species here. How does this work? Is We're doing this on the air. I love this. So is the bayou, could a bayou be part of a swamp or a swamp potentially part of a bayou? It seems like a bayou would be, I don't know, 
possibly. Yeah, a bayou seems more specific than a swamp to me. Is that right, Angelina? Oh gosh! I, like, would would it be the, pushing me to the should, edge of my yeah. here? We shouldn't put her on the spot here because she's going to lose her like Cajun cred. Totally. I'm going to have to go back that. to Louisiana and take a swamp tour and ask the guy, "What's the difference between a bayou and a swamp?" He's going to nobody asked them questions. No. Well, next week when you come to Charleston, just go on a uh, go on a alligator swamp tour in the in the low country, and you'll get your you can get your bayou fix or your low country swamp fix or whatever you need. You can probably explain it of there. All the things I might be missing about Louisiana, I can assure you, the swamp is not one. <laughs> <laughs> the alligators are not your, by the way, I will say the alligators, the alligator tours are pretty cool because you can get really close to alligators. Just going to say it. Um, <laughs> so if you're really interested in being like a foot from an alligator, it might be worth it. But I don't know who's interested in that. So I mean, I'm not. What, so is, much, the Venn, what is the Venn diagram? We had alligators on my college campus. Like this is not a treat for me. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of Venn diagram were you going to just bring up, David? I'm I was going to say, what is the Venn diagram this? of people who listen to this show are also on Facebook and also want to be close to alligators? Brandon uh, LaFleur, that's the one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Say, shout out. Native. That's why I had to throw him under the bus. And shout out to Brandon, who is off the grid in the Grand Canyon right now somewhere, hopefully still uh-huh. alive. So, Good for him. Not getting attacked by alligators at the Grand Canyon. I would, I would, if there is an alligator in the Grand Canyon, that is a very confused alligator. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, well, we got to go. I got to go prep for the conference. So we will, uh, everybody who's going to be there at the conference next week, we are looking forward to seeing you. Come say hello. Um, you guys, any final thoughts? You're good? I'm good. Great story. Great story. Y'all go read some Kate Chopin. She's awesome. Yeah. Actually, yeah, dude, that'd be great. Next week, we will be back with Susan Glassbell's uh, Jury of Her Peers, right? Yep, a Jury of Her Peers. Um, All right. So with that, uh, for Heidi White and Angelina Stanford, I am David Kern saying farewell here on Close Reads. Happy reading, and we'll talk to you next week. 